A few weeks back, we traveled on to Berkeley to interview our next guest at his home. Peter Dale Scott is Professor Emeritus of English at UC Berkeley and the author of Cocaine Politics, Drugs, Armies, and the CIA in Central America, as well as Deep Politics and the Death of JFK. His current work, titled The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America, was described as follows by Roger Morris, former National Security Council staffer. Peter Dale Scott is one of that tiny and select company of the most brilliantly creative and provocative political historical writers of the last half century. The Road to 9-11 further secures his distinction as truth teller and prophet. On last week's program, we addressed some reverberating political issues from the 1970s. In this part of our discussion, we've moved on to Iran. 1980s, the U.S. elects to use Saddam Hussein to counterbalance the Islamic Republic that was established in Iran that followed the downfall of the Shah. Could you just give us a brief overview of how we set about making Saddam our ally to fight Iran? We, we actually played both sides, you remember, because in the Iran-Contra thing, we went, once Iraq started winning, uh, then you had Oliver North with his neat idea, as he called it, of sending arms to Iran. The great irony about this is that the senior emissary who was sent by the Reagan administration to deal with Saddam Hussein in the early 1980s was Donald Rumsfeld, even though at that time he was not in the government, although he was very much involved in covert activities of the uh, Reagan administration. Well, staying on Iran, you, you wrote, to understand the road to 9-11 is necessary to visit Republican negotiations with Muslim fundamentalists before the 1980 election to stop Carter from negotiating the return of American hostages in Tehran. Again, can we talk about briefly about that episode, which uh, you noted that, quote, even in 2005, accounts of this episode remain outside the confines of mainstream U.S. political history. Right. Well, first of all, you have to remember that what really destroyed the Carter regime was the uh, disaster of the hostages in the U.S. embassy being seized by Revolutionary Guard in Iran. And that happened and, and was predicted would happen if America uh, admitted the Shah into the United States because the, uh, the, the new people in Iran feared, I think with some good reason, that if the Shah was in the United States, he would plot with the CIA to be restored. And uh, Carter was advised of all this and refused to admit the Shah to the United States until there was very, very intense pressure from David Rockefeller. And uh, Rockefeller hired, I know if that's the right word, but he used Henry Kissinger to put pressure on uh, Carter. And uh, Brzezinski, who was the national security advisor, was really a creation of David Rockefeller's. He was propelled into national prominence working for David Rockefeller's trilateral commission. And uh, eventually, all these people, I have a whole chapter on it, plotted to get Carter to reverse himself. The result of this was that the Shah was admitted, and the, as predicted, the hostages were seized in the embassy. 
And then for a whole year, uh, there were negotiations, both uh, Carter's negotiations, but also parallel Republican negotiations uh, to get the hostages released. And it's a very complicated story, but David Rockefeller, again, his men were working with the Republicans, and they were working with people who are prominent in Iranian politics ever since, including today, like Karubi and so on. And uh, the result was that the hostages were not released until the day that Reagan took over as the new president of the United States. We're sort of going in chronological here. We're in the Reagan-Bush years, I guess, at this point. Um, you note in the book there's a consolidation of the off-the-books government during Reagan-Bush. The scope of the war in Afghanistan is an illustration, I think, of some of that. It's been called the largest covert operation in history, if you can call a war of that scope uh, covert. And at this point, al-Qaeda and other groups become linked to a large number of arms we're shipping to Central Asia and our intelligence agencies. If I could begin with this business about offshoring our assets, Please. the early days of uh, U.S. aid to Afghanistan, it, first of all, it was mediated through Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, uh, which meant we had no control of, over it. And, of course, it also meant that it, uh, the United States could, as it did at the time, deny its uh, involvement. It meant that uh, Pakistan's political objectives uh, took priority, and Pakistan was not interested really in helping the indigenous mujahideen, the uh, freedom fighters, as Reagan called them, because they had their agenda, which was to redefine the Afghan-Pakistani border. So Pakistan was very concerned that most of the aid go to the one leader who was essentially their creation, had very little popular base in Afghanistan, a man called Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. And uh, from an American point of view, he was not good news at all. He was passionately anti-American. He was also funding his operations in part by the drug traffic. And it's said that in the 1980s, he became perhaps the most important heroin trafficker in the world. Uh, so that it's no surprise that whereas in 1979 almost no heroin came to the United States from that region, the so-called Golden Crescent, by 1981, 60% of the heroin in this country was coming from that area. So from that point of view alone, this was a disaster for America. It was all being done by Casey uh, a lot of what he did, his own advisors, even inside the CIA, which is, say, inside the deep state, they were saying, don't do this, don't do that. But he would do it anyway in little personal meetings with the head of the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. It was the infrastructure for the campaign in Afghanistan. And it also became, in that decade, the largest uh, drug money laundering bank in the world, and he would do these things with uh, Prince Turki in Saudi Arabia and General Zia in Afghanistan. And one of the worst of these programs, and this was one which was really uh, seriously opposed within the CIA, was uh, to give CIA money, training, etc., to a group called the Mahtab i Kidimat, the Service Bureau, which was creating a foreign legion in Afghanistan, which was recruiting Islamic extremists from Morocco, Algeria, Egypt, 
a lot of them actually from the United States. And perhaps the most serious recruiting was done right here in the United States because we were the most open country and the places where it was easiest to do. And the CIA thought this was dangerous because these extremists, they didn't like the Soviet Union, but they also didn't like the United States. You basically described fostering a recruiting center in Brooklyn. Right, yes, the Al-Kifa Center was in Brooklyn for a group which in 1988 changed its goal because now the Soviet Union said, okay, we're going to leave Afghanistan. So this group had to say, what are we going to do now? And they decided to call themselves Al-Qaeda and to continue the fight to liberate Islam from all foreign elements. It wasn't initially planning to bomb in the United States. It was They were very, very keen on getting the Americans out of Saudi Arabia at first. But it's not that they became anti-American. They were fiercely anti-American while we were recruiting them financing them. And, uh, you know, there was one of the Afghan leaders who said to somebody in the American government, my God, you're financing your own assassins. And Benazir Bhutto, when she was prime minister of Pakistan, she warned uh, President George H.W. Bush that this was a very, very dangerous program, but deep state went ahead with it. And again, as you're describing, things are sort of starting off and spinning a bit out of control. At one point, uh, the Afghans are smuggling drugs into the Soviet Union and also uh, supporting insurgencies, and I imagine Chechnya and the like. Right. And uh, Casey, this again was something that Casey was uh, warned not to do. But uh, they, I think that's actually what Casey's interest in the Foreign Legion was. He wanted to use them not just in Afghanistan, but north of Afghanistan in what was then still the Soviet Union. And, and they did do conduct these operations, and they were mostly foreigners that did them. The, the Afghans were interested in liberating their country, not in creating trouble somewhere else. Let's, uh, let's go back to Brooklyn and New York and talk about another one of the bombshells uh, that's in your book, uh, the story of, of Ali Muhammad. Yes, it's hard to tell this story in a, in a few minutes, but here is a, he's being called a triple agent because uh, he was actually recruited by the CIA, and they say that they dropped him. But he got to this country. He should have been classified as a terrorist, but an FBI consultant has said that he was admitted to this country on a special CIA program of exempting people from, from the prohibitions. He worked with special forces. While he was with U.S. special forces at Fort Bragg, he went off for a summer and actually fought in Afghanistan. This is something that American soldiers are not supposed to do unless they have, they're working for some other agency. 1989, he is training people in terrorist techniques uh, in and around Brooklyn, uh, New York, and the date is interesting because uh, in February of 1989, the last Soviet troops had left Afghanistan. He's doing this training in July of 1989, and the FBI is aware of the program, and for a while they're photographing him doing it, so they know who the people being trained and they know Ali Muhammad is doing the training. And then, for some mysterious reason, the surveillance is called off. Some people say that the first al-Qaeda act of terror in America was when the Jewish racist Meir Kahan was murdered. And he was murdered by three people. And uh, they had these people training on tape together, 
when they, uh, they arrested one and when they went to the man's house, they found the other two and they found this whole assemblage of materials for terrorism, including plans of the World Trade Center. And these people did actually, uh, some of them, blow up the World Trade Center for the first time in 1993. And yet the New York police and the FBI, they said Meyer Kahan acted alone and there was no evidence right. that he, he was connected. Killed, he was killed by a lone gunman. <laughs> a I lone, think we've heard yes, that one before. The, lo, the phrase lone gunman was dusted off and used for, uh, kind of, even though they had found these other two people in his home. Now, the, the, the key man here was not in the home. It was the, was the trainer, Ali Mohammed. And what is so serious about this playing with double agents is that Ali Mohammed in 1993 was picked up in Canada, in Vancouver, uh, uh, by the RCMP because he was waiting for a known terrorist, a man who's now in jail. And uh, they, so they picked him up. And Ali Mohammed gave them a piece of paper and said, phone this number and you will release me. They phoned the number. It was the San Francisco office of the FBI. They did release him because he was an FBI informant. And Ali Mohammed, within a year, had gone to Kenya and photographed the U.S. embassy there, personally took the photographs to Osama bin Laden, with whom he was very close, and the two of them decided where to plant the truck with the explosives that blew up the embassy. If we hadn't had this special relationship to Ali Mohammed, we might not have had the embassy bombing. And to this day, you know, uh, for that, uh, Ali Mohammed was arrested, but he plea bargained. We don't know the terms of the plea bargain. As far as anyone can figure out, to this day, he's not been sentenced. He's probably somewhere in the witness protection program. We should note, too, that this is a guy, apparently, who told people that he instructed al-Qaeda members how to use box cutters to get on aircraft. That's right, and where to sit up in first class. It, it's said that he personally knew at least three of the, uh, of the people. So, in other words, America was not at arm's length uh, from al-Qaeda. Uh, just as, going back to Italy, the Italian secret police were not at arm's length from the anarchists who were blamed initially for the Piazza Fontana bombing. The book is The Road to 9-11, Wealth, Empire, and the Future of America. We're speaking with author Peter Dale Scott. I'd like to come forward to 9-11, but before we do so, let's just take a slight jog into um, this area you describe in the book about plans for continuity of government. And I think people associate that with what would happen if there was a nuclear attack. Comedian Will Durst had a very funny line when that came out when it was revealed saying, boy, this is great. There's a nuclear war. You're fighting with dogs in the street for food. Our cities are leveled, but you can still win the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes because the government has a plan to deliver the mail. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I think it's quite legitimate to have planning for what happens if there's a nuclear attack and the government is, as they say, decapitated. This started in the 50s under Eisenhower and was a perfectly legitimate program then. It changed very much under Reagan. And uh, the proof of the change was that the, the end of the Reagan administration, they passed an executive order to say that this was no longer planning for a nuclear attack, but for any major uh, catastrophe. And uh, the proof of this is that 
continuity of government, whatever it is, was actually instituted on September the 11th. And the thesis of my book, or one of the central theses of my book, is that the continuous planning for, in effect, suspension of the Constitution, which began under Reagan, uh, was partially implemented on uh, September the 11th by the very people, which is, say, Cheney and Rumsfeld, who had been planning for this back in the 1980s. And when you say partially implemented, this means that some members of government, among other things, were sequestered away for, you're, you're going to be now the government. It's very hard for me to say what it meant because we've been told almost nothing. There was one important story in the Washington Post, and we know that uh, uh, Cheney, not on the day itself, September 11th, but shortly thereafter, spent most of the next couple of months uh, in these hollowed-out mountains which are uh, have been prepared for sustaining government if Washington is attacked and destroyed. And there's something like a hundred senior d- bureaucrats were there with him. So they were doing something. What were they doing? I think they were preparing the Patriot Act. They were preparing for the plans for warrantless surveillance and warrantless detention. All these things happened after... 9-11, and we know that they were being planned for in the 1980s by Cheney and Rumsfeld, even though Cheney was only a congressman, and Rumsfeld wasn't even in the government. He was not in the government, but he was empowered by Reagan to plan for suspension of the Constitution, and most of Congress didn't know. And what we do know is uh, a few things surfaced in because of Iran-Contra, really, And uh, Oliver North was actually asked about this. uh, Congressman Jack Brooks asked the question, uh, is it true that you have been planning to suspend the American Constitution? And then you got bang, 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 the gavel from Senator Inouye, who said, we we have to go into this in executive session, which is a way of conceding that there was something there. And the descriptions of what North was planning for in the 1980s fit very neatly with what has happened to us uh, since uh, 9-11, including uh, plans for martial law. And uh, this whole business of creating a NORTHCOM, I think, is... uh, This is no longer planning for a nuclear attack. This is planning for a revamping of the amount of public control over what's going on. You know, just see, you know, we're here we are talking in late October. We've just had all these fires uh, down in Southern California. How many people noticed that a general from Northcom was down there? As I say in my book, I, I, I talked about Katrina, that one of the reasons that the government waited so long in Katrina was that people think that they wanted to use martial law as a, they did use martial law. And they actually use some of these, uh, everyone's heard now about Blackwater, but maybe they don't know that Blackwater security personnel were patrolling in New Orleans. This is exactly the sort of thing that Cheney and Rumsfeld were planning for back in the 1980s. So I think continuity of government, COG, it's called for short. And I say, always say that, of course, it, it's really planning for change of government because, it, I, I mean, when you think of things like the Patriot Act, that's not continuity. That is change. It wasn't something that was drafted after 9-11. It was clearly there waiting to be brought in, as you quoted yourself from the project of New American Century in the case of a new Pearl Harbor, which is what we got. 
what they, in a sense, wanted, needed for their pro- program, and what we got on 9-11. I was a little bit startled, too, to read in your book that uh, apparently the, the origins of FEMA are a little, little shadowy as well. Again, back to the 1950s, there's been planning for emergencies, and uh, every president had a version of it. But uh, this actually started under Carter, and we owe this, I think, to Zbigniew Brzezinski and his friend Samuel Huntington, who made it very clear in a book which he published in the 1970s that he thought there was too much democracy in America. That's what we've been dealing with. We've been dealing with well-organized, very small cadres of people who, uh, Cheney being perhaps the most uh, brilliant example of this, who are convinced that America is too democratic to be the kind of leading power in the world that they want America to be. And they have been planning on how to limit democracy. And FEMA came in not just to handle emergencies, but with political agendas. And seeing you've asked, I will say that one of the first things that FEMA did was set in motion the process which took negotiating with Iran over the hostages out of President Carter's hands and put it into the hands of the banks. So that (laughs) the banks being all, you know, David Rockefeller, the, the chief bank involved in Iran was Chase Manhattan. And the chief source of the breakdown in relations between the post-Shah government and America were the demands. Uh, it's, it's really quite conspiratorial and difficult to spell out in a radio broadcast. I, I have a whole chapter in my book about the they David Rockefeller's people had a plan to deal with Iran and save their assets uh, and freeze them for, you know, they, they got frozen inside for, until the hostages were li- released, and there was nothing Carter could do about it, and FEMA played a big role in that. We should stress, as you mentioned, as a disclaimer, this radio interview is not a substitute for reading the book. You still need to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> yes. We're going to stop here and finish our discussion with Peter Dale Scott on next week's program, at which point we will put all three segments of the interview back together again on our website, radioparallax.com. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. We'll have more in segment three. Stay tuned.